If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 5, we're going to read the first 18 verses here in a moment. In the Gospel of John, we're looking at the big question, who is Jesus? And the way John shows us Jesus is uh, through signs. And so the first half of the book has been called the Book of Signs. And each of these things that, that Jesus does, are, they're meant to provoke you. They're meant to be um, a burr in your saddle, so to speak, uh, to prov- provoke you to faith. But as we're going to see this morning, right, it, it provokes some to faith and others to um, opposition and hostility, but no one is neutral. And so in chapter 5, the uh, opposition against Jesus is going to take off and he's going to defend himself, but this morning we're going to look at the sign. And so let's read God's word and then we'll, we'll meditate on this together. This is the word of our God. Now after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is, in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which means house house of mercy, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and he knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man, said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And this is the word of our God. He has spoken to us today in love. Uh, let's, Let's pray. Father, I pray that your sheep this morning would hear the voice of Jesus telling us to rise, to walk, to follow him. And so we pray that we would hear, hear him as our good shepherd, hear him as our sovereign king. Uh, we would hear him as our friend who's made clear um, your plans for us. So may we this morning grow in our ability and desire to trust his voice and to rest in his work. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, I mentioned this uh, quote by this American author, John Updike, 
and how he described the world without God. And, and he, he argues that if you look at the world without God, right, just go read the news, uh, it's a horror show. He says, look at all the evidence. Uh, landslides, plagues, massacres, falling airplanes, uh, incessant carnivorousness, right? nature specials, um, you know, amber alerts go off during church. This is me now, not him. Um, right? Rumors of war, actual wars. Uh, you could also add just, just the way the human bodies are falling apart to that list. Because if you look in John 5, right, you just, just look at the contrast to add to that evidence. Because on the one hand, you have um, just the sadness, right? There is a multitude of invalids. There's a large crowd of people who cannot walk for various reasons, who cannot see. They're all, this is a multitude of men and women whose lives have been ruined by the fall. Um, and so they're all hanging out in the shade under these colonnades, under these porches, staring at the di- all day at the water, hoping to see a ripple a sign of maybe God supernaturally, I would argue superstitiously, is doing something so whoever gets into the water first gets healed. They're unable to work. And so if that's your story, how do you think they would hear Psalm 92 that we read this morning? For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the work of your hands I sing for joy. Right? I'm sure they have questions. I mean, how do you hear that psalm when you come to church on a Sunday, just beaten down by sin and suffering, being well aware that you're being hunted, uh, haunted by uh, in a death, living in a death-haunted world? Right? Now, you see, you got that, but you also have a contrast because John is really clear, right? There's this, these difficult stories, but Jesus is, is down there in Jerusalem at a feast, Right? So here's a moment where you're supposed to be giving thanks to God. You're supposed to enjoy God, his creation, and his redemption. You're supposed to say thank you. You're supposed to sing Psalm 92 because it's also on a Sabbath, right? a day of rest. Right? It's hard to rest when your body isn't working. Right? And so you can feel the contrast, especially for this man who's been an invalid, languishing, paralyzed for 38 years completely helpless. And so this morning, I'm, I'm calling the sermon Jesus' Work and Our Rest because this is a sign. This is a sign of Jesus' glory, and, and this sign points to the finished work of Jesus, the reality that the very heartbeat of Christianity is Jesus, Jesus makes well those who are trapped by their need. And it's our job to rest in his work by faith. And so, and that rest is offered in the midst of this horror show, so to speak, which allows us to rejoice. <laughs> so let's, let's look at this text this way. Um, point number one is, is you need a concrete hope when things are not well, a concrete hope, something real. And as you read this text, there are very specific historical details, eyewitness-type details about Bethesda, this, the word that means uh, house of mercy. And John talks about it in present tense. Right? There is, right now, in Jerusalem, when John is writing, <laughs> uh, this, this pool. 
And what's interesting is for years, when non-Christians wanted to prove that the Bible was uh, not trustworthy, they would point to this text and say, we have never seen a pool in Jerusalem like this, a five, you know, especially surrounded by five porches. Right? And so they would argue, well, it must not have been written by someone who, it must have been written by someone who just didn't know Jerusalem or it was written so late, they just were hoping to get away with, you know, twisting the truth a little bit. Either way, someone had a creative imagination and you can't trust the Bible. And then in the late 1800s, archaeologists found it. Right. And so that's, that's the picture that's behind me, and they found it exactly as described. Here's you got the four sides and the fifth side running down the middle, or the fifth roof, I should say, not sides. Um, and so now to the point, so basically that what, what's fascinating is it started out as, this passage started out as evidence as to why you shouldn't trust the Bible or can't trust the Bible, and now... Um, this passage is really strong evidence that the person who wrote the Gospel of John, right, John, he knew Jerusalem because he was there. To the point where he could say in present tense, before the Romans trashed the place, uh, this is a real thing. And so that's why Pastor Tim Keller would say that it used to be evidence you can't trust the Bible as historically reliable is now evidence that you can trust it as historically reliable which is helpful, because when life stinks and when life is hard, uh, you need a concrete hope, something that's real, something that's grounded in history, and that's, that's part of what John claims to be, right? that Jesus isn't just uh, a coping mechanism. Uh, he's describing the nature of the universe, the real world in which we live. And so, if, as Paul says, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain. And I would argue if the Bible isn't telling the truth about some of these details in the Gospels, it becomes really hard to trust that they're telling the truth. And I would argue that would, the foundation starts to crumble. Right. You know, so, thinking about like horror, do you remember the, the, I think it was in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was the film The Blair Witch Project? Um, Right, low-budget film made by a bunch of college students running around the woods, just yelling at each other because they lost the map and were running from something terrifying. Um, I remember watching it with friends in college, and the whole row was shaking because one person in particular was just that scared and worked up. And you know, they, they lost the map, and the map was their concrete hope of getting to safety. You know, for the Bible to, to give concrete hope when you're surrounded by horror, uh, you need to have a map that's telling you the truth, right? that's describing reality, uh, that, that's showing you the way to God. And for it to be of any use to you, you have to trust the details. Right? And that's what I, I find helpful about this, this little historical detail about the, the pool is, is you can trust the details. Right? And speaking of details, did you notice as we read, uh, there's no verse 4, right? at least in the ESV. It goes from 3 to 5. It was a test to see if you're paying attention. It's probably not on the projected that way. <laughs> right? It's not a typo. It's actually intentional um, by, the, by the translators uh, because we have, we have some manuscripts that insert this idea, the local superstition, that the reason why so many weak and wounded 
are hanging out by this pool is because every once in a while they believe the Lord would send an angel to stir up the water and whoever got in the water first would be healed of their disease. That, there's a little note there. And so they want you to be aware that it is in some manuscripts of the Bible, but not the oldest manuscripts. And so the ones that we think are the, the closest to the original, that's what we have printed for you. So it's just a, it's a helpful note when you're reading it and you're going, where did that come from or where did that go? Um, Right? Part of the reason that's in there is so that we can see that this man has no concrete hope. He has a superstition. Uh, his hope is of something supernatural happening. It's a local superstition. You can see he's trapped. He's just staring at the water for 38 years. Right? And that, that leads to a point, too. Right? You need a concrete hope, something real. And, and what this man does is shows us the human nature, um, that every person outside of Christ is trapped by their need. Right? He's been an invalid for 38 years. It says Jesus knew him, saw him, and then knew that he had been there a long time. I mean, those are two beautiful words. He saw and knows. That's, that's what Yahweh does in the Old Testament. He sees the suffering of his people. He knows them. All right, and you know, the easiest thing to do when, when you run across someone whose life is destitute with no hope of change and it's going to be really inconvenient for you to, to get involved, the easiest thing to do is not look, is to look away. But Jesus looks. It's what the gospel say over and over and over again when he interacts with people. His love always begins with looking. And so he sees this man trapped by his need and asks him this profound question, do you want to be healed? Do you want to change? Right? You've been this way a long time. Do you really want to change? Right? And I say profound because I know myself, and I think it's just one of the things that's in every human being is we may say we want to change. <laughs> we may say we want to be made well. You may want to stop doing something that we know is destructive. You, know, you may want to forgive. You may want to not nurse bitterness, to not be controlled by our past. But do you really want to be healed? Right? And we all suffer today from past hurts. Do you want to be made well? I mean, for this guy, for Jesus to make him well, now he's going to, once he starts walking, he's got to start working. Right? His whole income status is going to change. I mean, for us, if you're going to change through an interaction with Jesus, you've you got to make change. You've got to live differently as if Jesus really is who he said he is. Right? Do you want to be well? Right? Now, if you look at this man, what kind of spiritual awareness does he have? Right? Do you see a guy who's seeking Jesus, who's desperately trying to fix himself, who sees his, who's completely aware of his physical, emotional, and spiritual needs? Not at all. He's, he's kind of thick all the way through. Because right? when Jesus says, do you want to be healed, all he can think about is his superstition, his hope of this pool making him well. He's, he can't even see who's in front of him, his creator who has the power to make him well. Right? He's still whining about not being able to get in the water. 
there's just zero mention of faith. You know, John is very intentional. When someone does believe because of something Jesus does, he tells you. Here, he doesn't. Right? And so, what I want to do is just camp out here for a moment, because here's someone who's, who's not saying, I am in need. He's not saying exactly at Jesus, I want your help. Yeah, he wants help to get into the water, but he doesn't want Jesus' help. Uh, there's no recognition of sin or guilt, no recognition of who Jesus is. And even in, you know, you follow the story, right? The, it says, now it was the Sabbath in verse 9, and the Pharisaical buzzkills show up, and, and they say, hey, you're, you're carrying your mat on the Sabbath. You can't do that. Right? To be clear, there's nothing in the Old Testament that says you can't. They've just added extra rules to make sure you're not breaking the Sabbath. Right? And his response to the religious police showing up, so to speak, is, is to say, don't blame me, he told me to. Right? I mean, it's, it's pretty similar to what I would have done to my siblings if I got caught, or my cousins, probably more my cousins, because I was the oldest. Yeah, he told me to. Right? Just like Adam, it's not my fault. And then he doesn't even know who Jesus is. He says, I don't know who healed me. And, so, and then even when Jesus finds him later in the day and says, uh, you know, see, you're well, go and sin no more, um, and in case you don't want anything worse to happen to you, so definitely sin no more. His response to that is to not heed the warning, it's to go tattle on Jesus, right? I mean, he goes and tells the Jews it was Jesus who healed him, and then it introduces the conflict. So we have, I mean, we don't really know exactly, I'm sure there is some simple gratitude, but there doesn't seem to be any kind of spiritual awareness. He's trapped by his need, right? I mean, you keep, keep going here, and I think, I think this is why Jesus warns him in verse 14 when he says, sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. It's because he isn't spiritually aware, Jesus warns him. Right? Side note here, right? Jesus says, sin no more, and he had been sick for 38 years, and all of us who've ever been sick have said, what did I do to deserve this? Um, apparently, we don't have that much detail, Jesus seemed to understand that for whatever reason he was an invalid, had some connection to sin. It doesn't go into any more detail than that. And so this is just a good time to hit time out and say, don't be like Job's counselors. You know, Job's counselors, Job's friends, I'll put it in scare quotes, Their counsel basically was, Job, maybe if you you were a better human being, God wouldn't be punishing you. (laughs) Not helpful. But here, Jesus makes a connection and says, hey, there's something worse out there, something scarier than being paralyzed for 38 years or being sick for 38 years. And what is that ominous threat? Right? What, is, what is he saying God's going to do to him? For so long, I would read this passage and say, Jesus, you said, sin no more so that nothing worse is going to happen. Does that mean if I go out and lose my temper, then I'm just going to get struck by lightning? You know, what is the worst? And it seems like Jesus is warning him of the last judgment, God's judgment. Because that's where Jesus goes when he defends himself later in this chapter. 
right? Because Jesus will say, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. It's passed from death to life. And then verse 28 and 29, this is, this is the point I want us to see, is truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So I need to make a exegetical, a Bible connection here for you, so you can see just how trapped in his need this, this man is. Jesus just called him the walking dead. Right? If you don't have faith, Jesus', Jesus voice goes out to raise the dead, even now, in present tense. We'll talk about this more next week. Right? While Jesus is talking, he's making the spiritually dead alive when he preaches the gospel. Right? But what's interesting this is a sick man. He functions as a mirror for us because when you read verses 28 and 29, as we just did, it says an hour is coming when, when the dead will rise. They'll, be resu- they'll, they'll be rise up to be resurrected or rise up to stand for judgment. Um, that same idea in verse 28 and 29 is found in verse 8 when Jesus says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. He's able to make well through the power of his voice. Rise up. So we go, okay, that's that's an interesting connection. What does that mean? Well, I think you can circle back around, right? On On the one hand, you have this beautiful miracle of Jesus making his body well, but what is his deeper need? One, look at how sin is plaguing him. He's blind. Right? He can't see Jesus, he doesn't know Jesus, he seemingly doesn't see the danger of God's judgment to the point where Jesus warns him. He needs to know that he can get out of that judgment by trusting in Jesus. Right? To quote John 3, right, unless one is born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. So he's spiritually blind, he's paralyzed, stuck in his old patterns and habits. Um, you know, we all understand what that's like of wanting to do the right thing, but you're still pinned down by this bad habit, this evil that you can't kick. Still doing the same old stuff, wanting to do good, but choosing the bad. Spiritually paralyzed. Needing to be told, rise up, follow me. We need the Spirit to make us alive. And so that's why I started by saying life without God is a horror show because the, the, the language used to describe human nature in the Gospel of John here is you're the walking dead, blind, paralyzed. Yeah. Yeah, this man is paralyzed by unbelief, I'll put it that way. He's trapped by his need, unable to get his eyes off himself. And yet this is the beauty of grace, Jesus heals him. He works to set him free. So, this is a good Reformed sermon. Do you see yourself in, in that portrait of that unless, unless the Spirit is working to get my eyes off myself and on to, to Jesus, 
to say, I actually need you, not just your help, Jesus, I need you and your work, we're not going to change. We're going to be stuck trapped by our need, looking for local superstitions, local idols, local fill-in-the-blank, other, other things to try and fix us, rather than keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the one who has the power to raise the dead, to bring change. Now, how does Jesus bring change? Well, by working. We're just going to get a glimpse here of what he's doing. Um, but the, the theme through John chapter 5 is this, right? John chapter 5 is saying nobody wants Jesus. I mean, there's opposition, there's hostility. The first time you, this is the first time you hear of the Jewish leadership saying, Jesus, we just want to kill you. Right? More evidence of the horror show of just humanity stuck putting Cain and Abel on repeat. Right? And even the one receiving the miracle, right? He doesn't seem to want Jesus. He whines about, you know, wanting something different than him and then tattles. So why, why do these guys want to kill Jesus? Well, one, this is where the conflict comes up. Jesus isn't keeping the Sabbath the way that they do, right? And I know it's hard for us as modern Americans to understand just how central Sabbath keeping is, is and was for the Jews, right? So Leslie Newbegin, the, the missionary scholar, says the law of Sabbath rest was perhaps the most important of all the bulwarks, all the walls that Judaism used to protect themselves from erosion by the surrounding pagans and paganism, which is a very uh, scholarly way of saying keeping Sabbath was the way they maintained their, their Jew cultural and religious identity surrounded by people that don't believe like them. You know, here's how we maintain who we are. And our proof is we keep Sabbath. That makes us different. That makes us holy. That makes us set apart. Right? So you start to get an idea of why they're, they're getting worked up. That, that the reason they would rest from work on the seventh day is it's, it's what they use to feel okay, like God is okay with us. And to prevent them from sliding into cultural decay. What would that be for you? But you add this idea from the rabbis, there was also this local belief that if every Jew could keep Sabbath perfectly, then the Messiah will come. And when the Messiah comes, he's going to right all that is wrong, and Israel will rise up to their glory. And it's because they would argue that to keep Sabbath is equivalent to keeping all of God's commandments. So, in other words, if you could just get everyone to do the right thing, to shape up, to get along, then the Messiah will show up and heal the world. God's kingdom will come. And so, in order to get to that point so that uh, the Messiah would come, this is what the Pharisees and scribes did. You know, the, the Sabbath laws were pretty simple. They didn't, they didn't go into the nitty-gritty details. They, they just started adding little, little laws here, like here's the fence, don't work on the Sabbath. They started building fences so you wouldn't get close to actually going across the fence that mattered. And so then it became equivalent. If you cross this fence, which is 100 yards from the actual fence you were told not to cross, 
You're already a Sabbath breaker before you've actually brought this, broken the Sabbath. And so for them, this is what happens. They, their religion justifies their willingness to break the same law that God says not to. Right? So when Jesus was okay in saying, hey, newly healed guy, carry your bed, it's okay to do that on the Sabbath, they got angry. They were ready to kill him because they were really tuned in on the Sabbath. I mean, that, that's an ugly picture into the human heart when, when humans are able to use God's good laws to justify harming others. You know, one of the best religious shows, religious shows I've seen that I don't want to watch again uh, is a horror show on Netflix. It was called Midnight Mass. So don't hear this as a justification to go watch it. This is... What's interesting, there's a creepy monster, but the, the, the creepiest monster in the whole story is the clergy who manipulate, uh, who harm, who don't protect the people but use the people for their own glory, for their own good. Right? It'd be a great thing to watch with people who, outside of the church who have questions about what church is. But like I said, it's, creep, it's, it, it's sad, it's scary. That's pharisaical religion, willing to break God's law of love to enforce others to keep God's commands. And so, Jesus' response to their hostility is in verse 17. Jesus said, my father is working until now, and I am working. So here's why Jesus does what he does. This is, you know, if you're on the playground, this is like Jesus poking them on the shoulder. He, he is kind of getting in their face, so to speak. Not, he's just being honest about who he is, and that makes them mad. Right? Because the Jews had all this whole theological discussion is, if God is perfect, how is God going to keep Sabbath? Because if God stops his work of holding all things together, then everything just goes poof and falls apart. So therefore, it must be possible for God to work on the Sabbath, and he alone is the one that allowed by God to work on the day of rest. So you could say God is working every, every Sabbath. So then you can hear the bombshell when Jesus, yeah. defending himself, identifying himself, really, when he says, my father and I are working on the Sabbath, he's saying, look, I am equal with God here. If God can work on the Sabbath, my father, <laughs> I too can work on the Sabbath because I am working. I'm doing his work. That's where he's going to go. We'll look at that next week. Right. And so this is what, why they tried to kill him. Is they, they immediately heard what, what probably goes over our heads a little bit, is Jesus was claiming equality with God. He's claiming to have the authority, the same authority that God does to work on, on the Sabbath. So what is that work? Well, in this chapter, it's to bring a healing Sabbath rest to a world that is blind, lame, and paralyzed. To rescue those who are trapped in their need. And the way he, here in this text, he, he heals a man who doesn't ask for help. Jesus raises him up. Jesus does all the work. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Except this man didn't believe. So, for us, what Jesus did, right, that's what, 
his perfect life in order to give us a Sabbath rest, a rest where we can enjoy, where we can put to, put to death the voices of condemnation in our own head and in our own heart, put to death the very real shame and guilt we feel because we are sinners in the eyes of God. You know, we just prayed about our anger. Right? That's, that's convicting of itself, and that's just one small part of our humanity. No, in order for us to, to be free from judgment, to be free from condemnation, to be free from justifying ourselves by our own work, right? Jesus is at work now on the Sabbath. And so when you get to the cross and Jesus says, it is finished, to tell us die, in John 19, I mean, that is an astounding thing to say, that my work is done. I've achieved perfect righteousness sent by my Father to accomplish. Part of what he's communicating is that you are forgiven and all who believe in him are set free from judgment and that because Jesus was judged, you're you're free to be raised up into a condemnation-free life. Jesus is your rest. That's what John is pointing at over here, that because Jesus is working, he is working for your, your rest. And Elsewhere in the Gospels, of course, Jesus says, come, all to, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, right, when it describes how do you keep Sabbath as a Christian, right? Rest in Jesus and begin right now the eternal Sabbath. Because Jesus' work is what allows you to be treated in God's eyes as if you've kept every single one of God's commandments, despite desire, still desiring and doing harm. What we need to hear is Jesus' voice to get up. Get up, follow me, walk and follow me. And the reason we struggle, the reason we're paralyzed so often is because of our unbelief in Jesus' finished work. we're, We're like the man at the pool, and Jesus says, do you want to be well? And we say yes, while looking elsewhere, not at Jesus. That's how unbelief works. So this is the power of the gospel illustrated. Jesus is able to heal an invalid for 38 years who did not want to change, who was trapped in his need, who contributed absolutely nothing to the miracle except his need. And that's what we bring to the table in the gospel. Do you believe that? So that's, that's the call this morning. Come to the cross, an empty empty tomb, Bring your need and see Jesus love you to the depths as you see him condemned in your place. And now looks at you, sitting at the right hand of God, and we can hear him once again say, do you want to be made well? Rest in me, says Christ. Get up, take up your cross, and follow him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this gift of grace sheer grace that we just heard and saw, and I pray for our hearts, Lord. There are things that we are stuck on, uh, things that we are struggling to do to obey. Um, so I, I pray first that we would trust you as our, as our Savior. We would come to a clear understanding of the gospel, but also then, Lord, as we struggle to change, we find ourselves paralyzed by unbelief. Lord, may your Spirit speak with our spirit that we are your children and that we would hear Jesus calling us by name.
to get up and follow him, that we would be ready and willing to keep his commands. So enlarge the cross in our eyes, Lord, even as we shrink and see, help us see the way you've taken the shackles off our hands. May you continue to glorify yourself through our work as we follow Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.